whenever my world falls apart I never lose hope or lose heart Whatever the form of the storm that may brew Not with you to lean on, darlings, you Hello and welcome to The Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn. My guest today is a writer, an actor, and a storyteller. It's Mark Eugene Garcia, everybody. Hello, hello. How are you? I'm so excited hello, to be good. here. How are you? I'm so excited that you're here, too. We've been corresponding over email for a while, so I'm glad to to catch you here in the drama bookshop. If you're watching this part, you can see <laughs> coming to us in real live. life. In live, real life, live from New York, live in there, straight up from <laughs> right there. You go, straight up from rehearsal, mm-hmm. uh, and we will certainly be talking about uh, eight, the eight tales of Pedro and, uh, and your show that is going on right now as you're listening to this. Uh, but first, you're here to talk about a man of no importance. It's a rainy Dublin morning, sky a black umbrellas passing, just a normal day. A woman is sliding. Butcher next door waves goodbye to a man of no importance. Oh, look at that. He's got, oh, wow. That is like, yeah. Library sale edition? No, this is a a collector's item. I bought it like right when it came out. Hardback, actual strips of, of the show. It's limited edition. Nobody I know has this, and uh, <laughs> I'm a super. But even fan. the Terrence McNally Library has that, right? Yes, <laughs> that's really good. Well, how did a man of no importance come into your life? Um, I was obsessed with Aaron's and Flaherty for a really long time, and they're actually the reason I write musical theater. Um, to to take it back, even I, I had a weekend of seeing. Uh, the the pre-Broadway tryout of Ragtime in Los Angeles and then a regional oh. production of Once on this Island that night because it was a daytime show I saw and then uh my ex and I saw the movie this is t- tells you exactly when this was it was 97 the movie of Anastasia and I bought all the those albums at the Best Buy across the street and <laughs> um I was listening to them and then I happened to look and realize oh my god the same people wrote all three of these people write musicals. What? Yeah. And it just made me want to do that. And so because of that, I just fell in love with everything they did. And so this was the first album I actually eagerly awaited for. Like just, mm. I, I I was on the countdown on the Amazon countdown for it. I knew it was coming. Um, and then the day it came out, I drove over to the nearby Virgin mega store to buy it. And it wasn't there. Mm. And I called everywhere, (laughs) everything, nobody had it. And so I was like, all right, well, then I am going to go to Amazon. I went on Amazon and I ordered it and I thought, you know what? I want it tomorrow. So I, for the only time in my life, did a second day delivery. And I went and checked later on that day to see, has it shipped? How does this work? Will it really be here? And I saw that it had got postponed. The release of it had been postponed for six weeks. 
And I thought, well, what does that mean for my, um, for Your my delivery? delivery? Right. <laughs> but I also got the notice that it had already shipped. And so the next day I had this album of a man of no importance and nobody else did. <laughs> I still don't know why it was held because it was fine to ship. I had it. Hmm. Uh, and so my friend, my friend, uh, ordered it and he got the note that was like, you can't get this for another six weeks. Sure. Um, but he rocked out to my album in the car, but you know, rocking out to streets of Dublin. Um, <laughs> but it just became such a special show to me because it's so small and it's about so much. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And so that was, that was me. That was 22 year old me driving around all Southern California listening to <laughs> no importance sure. at, at high volume. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is, it, it's, I'm glad you brought up the sort of, Clarity and Aaron's of it all, because if you really want to talk about a diverse body of work, mm-hmm. like it's really to go from, like you say, once on this island, first probably their first big hit, to ragtime, a couple years, almost a decade later, to Susicle, to this, like is just such a what, and at a stage of the film, obviously in between all that, mm-hmm. it, it's such a wild swing, and and they're not scores that you i mean i was like listening to this several times i did spot a few little stephen flaherty flourishes mm-hmm. and things here and there but on the whole like you say you would listen to all those things and not realize instantly it was all written by the same duo it it, it the only thing that links them all is that they're very good <laughs> exactly and, and their storytelling actually this is the show that made me write to stephen flaherty i mm-hmm. i wrote him uh a letter and it was just that it was i love your your work because i don't know I, I don't know you wrote it until I've noticed that. And then, and then that's what I hear. And there is a specific moment when, uh, in the opening number, when they sing a girl dressed in blue and it's that chord. I'm like, there, there, that's a Stephen Flaherty chord right there. A blue-coated girl no one's noticed before Enters the bus, takes a seat by the door And I... I always look for that that moment, and he wrote me back. Uh, he actually, I still have this letter, twenty uh, something years later, and it's framed on a wall, um, mm. just saying like, "Thanks for hearing me," and just that my enthusiasm bounced off the page. Um, <laughs> but it was all this show, like this show did so much, and kind of opened that door for me to realize, all right, yeah, like this is something you wanted to do, like so you should you should really be doing this because there's there's one of these it also started probably my favorite part of their aaron's and flaherty's uh writing career like i feel like they had like the big broadway ones and then they had this like nice little trio of off broadways Mm -hmm. with this dessa rose into the glorious ones before Mm -hmm. like jumping back in and uh (laughs) with rocky both feet yeah i know yeah (laughs) those ain't broken (laughs) um though i do i do love that i i i listen to rocky a lot um actually act one of rocky reminds me a lot of a man of no importance that small intimate Mm, mm -hmm. though very guitar driven it's yeah uh i I told her that i told lynn aaron said i was like i love act one of rocky and she's like who are you nobody says that (laughs) (laughs) i was like i'll write to the times and tell them that sure i thought act one was great And just not talk about Act Two. Just let it. I, I, I liked Act Two as well, but I loved Act One. Like I'll just re-listen to that mm. over and over again. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a small little intimate show that just happens to explode into a boxing match. That's right, as uh, it like you do, <laughs> which is what the film does. I mean, it's it's a, yeah. that's the way the film works. The film is a tiny little film about this guy, and then all of a sudden, everything blows out of you know gets way out of proportion. Yeah, and I think they had that working against them because is Rocky like no that's one? No such one such a tough. Yeah, yeah. It's like I want to see the Rocky show. Like no one was, no one was saying that, and so <laughs> for them to do it, like they, they, they took what was there and made the most beautiful thing out of it. But just unfortunate that no one really was like, yeah, Rocky. I, like I really thought they should have skipped and done like Rocky three or Rocky four. Don't don't do Rocky. Like Rocky right. is such a different movie. It's such a small like in a lot of ways. It's a smaller film. Mm-hmm it's a character study. It's got a tragic and not a tragic, a triumphant ending, but a, like a, but a downbeat one, you know, it's a very, it's, you know, kind of a perfect little movie in that way. And the sequels are what get more bigger and ostentatious. And that's what, but also where I feel like they could sing a little more like Rocky's not a movie right. to me that, that sings uh, in the way that some of those later sequels do. Um, but of course you can't do that. You can, I mean, it w- God, wouldn't that be cool though? If they came up with a Broadway version of Rocky four, just like, just, four. Yeah. <laughs> just Rocky four, the all the other ones. just skip all the just other one opening number that covers everything, just, right. everything else in there. It's Rocky. I mean, you could do that, right? That, that mm-hmm. works for me. I mean, it works for me. I don't know if it would work for anyone else. Uh, but so yeah, man of no importance is one of those interesting, it feels like a transitional musical, like you say, in yeah. their career going from, you know, Broadway hit, Broadway shows, I should say, you know, once in a while, my, my, my I, I always forget my favorite year wasn't a hit because I really liked my favorite year and I always forget yeah. it was not a, a big hit. Or it, musical. I, until or musical until much yeah. later. Yeah, I, I don't understand. Uh, yes, anyway, I, I I imagine their first five musicals as being like this, this string of hits. It, it isn't true, but they mm. are all now very well regarded shows. Yes. But then to go from that to then shrink it way down for for 2002 Mm. because this is the same creative team that brought us ragtime which is just one of the biggest musicals ever to shrink it way down into this this character study of a show it's probably important actually at this point we have done this show once before on the show so i usually don't do a plot synopsis on a repeat but i think that's important in this show because there's a lot of plot not on the album if you listen to this album you're not going to get everything, you you know, mm-hmm. plot wise from it. So do you think you could sort of give everyone a, a quick plot synopsis of a man of no importance? Yeah. And I think what's wonderful about it is that it's about so much. It's about so much. And it's also not about so much. Like when I tell people here at work, people will ask me like, you know, my favorite show and I'll tell them the show and I'll explain like, yes, it's about a man who drives a bus. Uh, he is, secretly gay and he is also putting up a production of salome in his church basement uh the church finds out they uh cancel the production which leaves him kind of at an emotional place uh and in that he comes out gets beaten up and his world crumbles completely around him this is all jolly stuff that sounds right. Yeah, it is, singing, right? right? Um, his world completely <laughs> crumbles completely around him. Uh, but he discovers who he is. And he discovers that the people in his life that he thought were going to leave him aren't. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's really beautiful because when you start listening to the show, it's just about a guy 
trying to do theater and trying to make to enlighten them uh, the people around him um his sexuality his life his yearning for love isn't even part of his story he doesn't even think about that but once but once he does then it's like an explosion and all of this comes out and we see the the naive way he's he's been looking at the world isn't the true way and it's also the way with himself um yeah, that was a lot, but it's also, it's just beauty. It's just beauty. The yeah. story is just beauty. I've seen this show like five times and every time it was something different, oh, wow. but I can't not sob throughout the show. I don't know anyone mm. who's gone to see the show and not come out sobbing. It's just, Oh, oh sure. So, yeah. so good. Oh yeah. And beautiful. I mean, like you said, you, you hit that word. I think that's very important. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's this, what this show is. It is a celebration of beauty. Uh, in in the in the best sense in the sort of like purest sense of the word because like is from that little plot synopsis folks you may not think this is like you say it it all sounds very cheerful it is actually in moments very very funny and very true and very Mm -hmm. but it's very human it's got that wonderful thing that some stories have where everything that happens in it makes perfect logical sense i and at the end of it there's no like huge awakening of like everyone's fine with him being gay and he can live out in 1964 in Ireland. It just wouldn't function that way. But the people he loves love him. There's no, he is abandoned by, by, you know, the church cancels the show. His job is going to certainly become more difficult going forward. We get that. But the people he cares about, especially like his sister and his best friend still care about him and that's mm-hmm. huge i mean in that it's it's such a small thing that little opening but it causes this tremendous emotional growth and like you say the ending is then just you're just sobbing you know at the, at the yeah end of the show. <laughs> it's that's something that they do so so well in their writing where you take like once on this island or you take this or you take the glorious ones is where i really realized it i know if you if you saw that or listened mm. to it um I, I drove to Pittsburgh to see that from New York to go see it. Oh, wow. And uh, <laughs> saw it there. And that's another one. I could go on for hours on the glorious ones. I It hits on so many levels. And at the end of the show, the main character who's been wanting this thing for so long is the only person who can't achieve it and or even see it. And at the very, very end, the last lines are him looking out saying, I see it. And you realize that he got what he wanted, but it has been so just like pulling at your heart and so sad beforehand that I was already crying and then I'm laughing and then the lights black out and mm-hmm. I'm doing both. And I turned to my husband in the dark and I just said, I don't know what I feel. I just feel. <laughs> <laughs> and it's something that, that Aaron's and Flaherty do so well with their shows mm-hmm. is that afterwards it's just this overwhelming feeling and you can't even decide if you're happy or sad you're just connected and human and and relating to these people and and just in this beautiful whirlwind of of emotion and that's that's exactly what this show does i wasn't ready for it and it really punched me in the gut (laughs) it's a a great show (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean it really it really is and they do um a great job with 
they, their shows tend to start with the world in order, yeah. which I really like about as, as a way to start a show that like everything seems fine. Like there's, you know, there's a guy, he's on a bus, he takes your ticket, he reads some poetry, everybody likes him. It's all fine. Sort of sister's a little grumpy, but like, whatever, it's all, you know, it's all going to be good. But then you realize just as the scenes progress and we see him migrate through his life that it isn't there's something wrong somewhere. You know what I mean? Like the, 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 there's a disruption here. Something's not quite functioning properly. And that is partially because he is not being honest about who he is. And he's not being honest with himself about his, his circumstance. It's a real, like, it's a very easy um, kind of place to play where suddenly it's like, no, things are not as, as clean as you think they are. Mm-hmm. And it's a real like it's a fun as a writer. It's a great it's a I like that. I like not starting in in starting with the world in disharmony. I like starting with like it looks it looks so nice. Everything looks so fine. And then like the assumptions start to get rocked. Ragtime's probably the clearest example of that. But this show has that that element to it as well. Yeah. I mean, he's, they can write a killer opening number. Oh, um, God. Yeah. <laughs> my God. Like I just I can just have a playlist of their opening numbers and be happy forever. Um, but yeah, no, that's true. Like, and this one is so with that because it's just, it's so elegant, just the way it starts with his day and you follow him through the entire day and meet all of the people in his life and how they relate theatrically to, to how he views the world. And it's just so simple and beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I remember the first time listening to it and just describing the in the lyrics describing his way home of like you know make a left then a right and i'm like it's so simple mm-hmm. i saw that lyric coming a mile away but it's so perfect for what this story is um yeah it's just ugh, it's ridiculously beautiful <laughs> <laughs> so when you say like this w- was was this the show that really kicked you into being like wanting to be someone who writes you mean being yeah, a librettist like, and being a playwright like this was the one for you of the yeah like there. this is i'd are like their three their trio that trifecta weekend i had uh really got me into like people write musicals and then i just started writing a lot of poetry and started uh really pursuing it and at that point i was i was pursuing it in a in a school in in los angeles um and i was having my first like 15 minute mini musical uh premiere when this this came out but this is what solidified what i want to write because Mm. all of my shows i strive to give that that spin of you don't quite know how you feel at the end like you you're feeling happy but you're also feeling sad like and this is the show that really really did that of like okay Mm -hmm. this is how this is the stories you want to tell this is the type of stories and what you want people to feel when they walk away is you know sorrow with a sense of hope or the opposite or extreme <laughs> happiness with a sense of uh, uncomfortableness <laughs> sure yeah they do really live in uncomfortable situations it, it's it's something mm-hmm. that i find admirable and awful at the same time because mm-hmm. <laughs> we all you know i think a lot of a lot of writers get you get the note a lot of the time when you're learning or when you're studying writing is like the big like you have to put your characters in bad situations and you don't want to because you like your characters and you want them to be happy and fun and so you know you but you have to challenge them with conflicts (laughs) but 
And Flaherty and Aaron's do that, but they also, I think, more challenge their characters with like just incredibly awkward situations that are just like emotional cringe. And that's yeah. harder for me, I think, both as a writer and as a as a as a viewer and a listener to sort of handle the like oh man this is this oh this is just all i don't like this i don't like this way it's very real it all feels great but like you have scenes like books or mm-hmm. the confession where you're just like oh i don't i don't like that <laughs> i feel but it, again it puts me right in the circumstance with those characters and i get where they are and where they're coming and, from so it's very necessary and i love it because i love i love confession how it's its own beauty and then it goes off into uh, that Streets of Dublin reprise mm-hmm. in the middle of it. And where where he can find the poetry in the world that he's looking for um, is so just wonderful. And that was probably one of the first moments I like teared up when listening to it. Just like, oh God, oh God, he's, <laughs> here it is. Here's, here's this moment. He can say it and then not saying it. Oh. But you're here in the deck in a little box With a fella who might know less than you Then you'll hurry home and lock the locks Another box to climb into For God's sake, man, tell him Then we'll have a pint Is that all, my son? There's one other thing you ought to know I've been trying to find the words And what would that be? I... Well, I... No. That's all I have to say Say five Hail Marys to our fathers, and next time don't take so much time telling me the same old sins, Alfie Barn. It's that thing about how how isolating that is that never would have occurred to me as somebody who just never had that that experience in their lives. And for the, it, it really drops you in that moment, especially as someone who was raised Catholic, of being like, I've been in confession. Mm-hmm. And like, it's it's the worst. I wanted to say if you've never done it for anybody out there. Oh, no, but uh uh, it is like, yeah, it's it, and but it should be the best. That was the thing I kept being like, this is what it should be. He should be able to turn to this this other human being in this spiritual leader in the community and tell him the truth. And he just super duper can't like you really can't tell him. Yeah, <laughs> it's awful. it's what well, it's funny because I know I know it, I never told the priest during confession. I don't mm-hmm. know if I could have either. Um and that was that was uh, Catholicism's weird. <laughs> <laughs> that is definitely that is definitely one way to put it, Mark. <laughs> I I remember because I had my first communion late. Like I, I I was a teenager at that point, but we had to do our first confession first. And again, at that point, I was a teenager, and I tried mm-hmm. to like shoehorn in. Like they wanted us to like first of all that one you had to do like in a line and get and do it in front of the church, but not like loud enough for people to hear you. But you would just sit with the priest and then go back to your seat. Like, and so, mm, so it's okay. like, they couldn't hear you, but they also wanted you to make like a little card to put up there. Like I'm happy to be doing my confession card. I don't mm. know. Um, but in my card, I wrote like, I'm happy to be doing my confession and please forgive me for the sins I say and the ones I don't. 
Like I tried to like Ooh, good to like shoehorn in some things. I like that. Um, I like that a lot. And then afterwards, I was like, I'm off the hook. I'm good. Right. Yeah. You got it. Um. <laughs> because that's what well that's what being catholic is though it it raises you to like find the loopholes and the rules mm -hmm. there's a lot of rules so you're looking for the the what are the ways around the rules yes and that was that was definitely that it was like good that's a Uh really good man that's clever you're a smart kid that's i know i was a smart 15 year old (laughs) dealing with some shit um (laughs) i'm gonna write this down and if you accept it yeah, that's then You're, God. So that that to, means I'm good. You're the, I'm you, good. you took it. You let it. You let mm-hmm. it go. No big deal. Mm-hmm. I remember being in here on out. <laughs> right, yeah. Now, of course. Right now, I have to do this yeah. again. I have to figure out a way to sneak this in later. Uh, I remember when I was in like seventh grade at Catholic school, we went on retreat, and they usually had confession on retreats, but we ran out of time. So the priest did a group absolution. And I remember being like, hang on, this is an option. I didn't like, yeah. wait a minute, wait a minute. What, what you could just forgive, like, hang on for one second there, man. Like nobody told me this was a choice. I wanted to do that. <laughs> like, just forgive me. It's no big deal. Yeah. I'm super sorry. Whatever. Like, just give me, give me the goods. Oh, that was a, that was a turning point for me as a young, as a young Catholic man. I'm like, huh? Okay. Yeah. I'm going to think about this for a minute. It's interesting. Uh, I, I, I still <laughs> like some of the, traditions from it but it is sure it is so weird <laughs> yeah no, i'll never pretty... not be catholic but well that <laughs> oh that is a thousand percent true no that's yeah. like that it is in your if you're culturally if you're raised the way i imagine you i mean mm-hmm. I, I don't know what it was like to be raised hispanic catholic in in california well, it's not just but... that my 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 grandmother uh like works in the church like mm-hmm. actually like mm-hmm. works in the catholic church and uh and so my my uh, mom got like it would come and go like it would be like oh we're really Catholic and then there would be times mm-hmm. we weren't um, and then like, whenever we'd argue immediately she would pack me into the car and we'd have to go and have confession like right afterwards mm-hmm. after a fight with my mom um, but yeah it was I and also like my dad is not Catholic and my parents were divorced and so I was Catholic half the oh, time half the time um, yeah. every other week. <laughs> but uh yeah it it's still a part of me like and i think i don't think it'll ever not be but there are definitely parts that i'm a little eh about but sure that's with anything i think um i've i've had a better or better relationship with religion than than most i know um and maybe it is because the fact that my my family was so involved in it and i remember coming out mm-hmm. to my grandmother and that was not even catholicism wasn't even an issue when I came out mm. to her, like she was just okay, cool, and oh, the rest great. of the family just as much. Like my family was great, I, and and I, I was nineteen, and I I kicked down the door of that closet for <laughs> everyone else, <laughs> and uh, then a cousin and an aunt and a few others came oh, falling wow. out after I did that. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I, I I was lucky with that. Is that yeah. and that maybe that's why I can have such a somewhat healthy relationship with religion i love it i write about it so i i love it that, I, well that's really i mean because you're i think you and i are about the same age and this that's pretty amazing to like in the late 90s if, mm-hmm. if i'm doing my math right to come out and like that was which is still a time when that was a dicey ish yeah. proposition like just straight across the board does not even like, oh, yeah. religion aside from it that was not a foregone conclusion that this is this is going to be cool 
uh that's really that's really great i i, I applaud i applaud Thank your you. for that it was, that's really really nice yeah like I, it just it suddenly i never thought i would come out i think i i remember telling someone that my my rules were that uh women were forever and men were for 15 minutes um that was my <laughs> Hey, all right. I mean, <laughs> that was my specific quote. That was and your, I, and uh, I actually asked out my first boyfriend by saying, "I think I'm going to change the rules," and he just said, "Well, if that's a question, then yes." And then we were together for two years. Um, oh, wow. But in that in that two year time, life changed, and I realized, oh shit, this is what love feels like. Mm-hmm. Like this is what it is to be in a relationship. I thought I'd been in relationships up until this time, and I've felt the the caring and the attraction and all of that but actually like someone who i just felt like i could not live without um that i had never experienced and so once that happened i was like yeah no i gotta i gotta yeah. start telling people <laughs> <laughs> gotta chase that feeling yeah let's check alfie Byrne. remember him um <laughs> well i was gonna say like but that that is actually kind of what he, he it's such a I mean, in the story, he is in love with his his best friend Robbie, mm-hmm. um, or at least he thinks he is. I mean, I think we yeah. can kind of give the, the 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 benefit of the doubt to that as well. Like he he's certainly placing a lot on this i very the safe of Robbie crush, yeah, that he mm-hmm. can have that won't go anywhere, and it's, it's definitely like he can put all of his emotional weight over there. Um, and by and then, and then I mean, of course, they have what is. A, a raucous scene when he discovers Robbie having an affair with a yes. married woman and it gets it gets real super fast you live with your sister and don't get out well poems won't teach you what life's about or how it feels loving someone who can't walk down the street with you this is my life this is who I love Love someone yourself before you judge me. I do. What I love about that is that's all Terrence McNally, uh, mm. because that scene did not happen in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, this is—I feel like Mrs. Patrick is an invention of 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 this show specifically. Um, I can't—I I saw the movie so long ago, but I feel like I don't remember him walking in on Robbie. I feel like he walked in on. Uh, uh Adele. Adele. Um, yeah, it's Adele. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like he walked in on her in the movie. Like it was a very different situation. And it was more about like realizing like who she was and what she did that was his his, his revelation then. And they rewrote it for this and created this amazing, amazing scene that mm-hmm. leads to that line of like walk down you'll wait till you find out what it's like to walk down the street with someone and you can't hold their hand or you can't love them right. in public. Right. And it's like, oh God. Oh, man. Um yeah. yeah. So so wonderful. And it's such a good Yeah. Such a good moment in the story because that's ultimately where his world falls apart. And it's in those moments of desperation that we take those steps of like, all right, well, what else do I have to lose? Um gonna come out and mm-hmm. i'm gonna go talk to a guy at a bar um yeah 
and and that's gonna go very badly. Yeah, like poor Alfie. <laughs> yeah, can't catch a break. Um, uh, but ultimately, all. all those things need to happen because his he's created this world that no one else lives in. Um, and that's a lot of the opening number is this cucumber sandwiches world that in his mind, it makes perfect sense, but no one else actually lives there. And so that world does need to fall apart for him to move on and, mm. and have the opportunity to live in a world that other people live in. Um, and so that's a lot of what that opening was all the way till that point. And I think that's where the beauty is. Cause he's saying, Literally, welcome to the world in his his big eleven o'clock number. Um, right. and they say, you know, let here I am, and here you are, and the people who are still with him in that world are what make it beautiful. When it's the moment, I mean, th- this has such a wonderful setup that he, like we say, he he is he has created a character for himself, and he has populated his life with characters basically and he relates to people i love when we meet all the people in the theater and they mm-hmm. give us their bio i just i love that number so yes. much and i love the bio the bios are perfect ernest lally will be remembered by saint amelda's audiences for his sterling portrayal of mustard seed in a midsummer night's dream you may play royalty or just be your bearer number three but, but you're going up rasher flynn is a founding member of saint imelda's and appeared in our inaugural production of pygmalion as colonel pickering in his youth rasher was an all-ireland gymnast <laughs> Sully o'hara currently unemployed is making his theater debut with this production Thank you. The house may not be packed, but don't let go, sir. You've got scenes to play. Oh, that this too, too solid flesh should melt. And he sort of relates to everybody by roles that he puts them in. And he does it with Adele. He puts her into the role of Princess Salome. And mm-hmm. so it's good and bad. It's positive. Like he sees something in her she doesn't see in herself. It It works out. But also in that sense, he realizes, and we realize before he does, that he's really, again, it's like you say, he's just keeping everybody at arm's length. He's just safely putting everybody in a jar and he doesn't have to really start to interact with them. And once he finds out about Robbie having the affair and it, it, and I mean, you know, the play gets canceled. Even when that happens, he still relates to the the butcher as a character. I mean, he gives him the, the, the a character name. He, he puts him in that place. He then still has to play a character. He then tries to be Oscar Wilde. He puts on yeah. the costume. He goes to the bar as as a performance. And man, life comes and just kicks him in the ass when that happens. In I a, saw a very um, sad scene. Oh my God, yes. I saw a beautiful production, one of my favorites out in Brooklyn. Um, and they made the choice to have Oscar Wilde uh, be in the show pretty much the whole time. Um, mm. And so they had, a, it was a, it was a different actor playing him. Uh, and he was just always there in Alfie's peripheral. And there were moments like during the song art where they would say, like someone would present him like, Oh, here's this, here's this. And Alfie would look over at Oscar. Oscar would shake his head and Alfie would turn mm. and say, actually, no. And it was, <laughs> it was a really neat moment. Cause then when Oscar Wilde spoke it, like he wasn't kind of out of nowhere. He was sure. He was always there. And when Alfie became Oscar Wilde at the end or uh, dressed up as him, it it again was like something that was always in his head. 
Uh, and it was such a, a neat little touch that I I wish others did because uh, it just it totally fit into that show. Um, and yeah, it was nice. Like I I've been really lucky to see so many productions. Um, I like NYU did one. I saw the recent one. Um, I drove up to San Francisco to see the the West Coast premiere of it, and it's nice because it's always like this tiny tiny little theater, and you're like a, maybe a 90 seat audience if that and this mm-hmm. giant tiny show <laughs> that it's like <laughs> it's too big for this tiny stage but it is there because of all of that emotion um it's just such a wonderful wonderful experience There's, i don't think i've ever had an experience like t- seeing this show in those like tiny tiny places because you're just overwhelmed it's just completely overwhelming yeah, I it it it's but it's a, it's such a perfect little show. Like you said, like it, it is a mm-hmm. little show physically, but with grand ambitions. I would love to see this show in a church basement. I mean, I think oh that's God, like yes. the emotional experience of that. It is is exactly right because it is like one of one of the things that I think you might lose with putting Oscar Wilde in there is that there's some good doubling in this. Oh uh, yeah, thoughtful doubling, not just like. The, the characters that par- they, they they parallel when they double it's a, it's a really neat uh they're obviously paying attention when they decided to double right. to double people which is which is very important for that for this sort of production but i like that idea of of wild kind of being omnipresent because he is omnipresent for he is, he for is. alfie and he alfie really views himself as i mean not a contemporary or a colleague of wilds but sort of like he's like wilds up here he's here and then everybody else is down below like he's he's not yeah. quite that there but he's in he's in the, the 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 stratus above that respects this man and understands everything about him i love this the the little detail on the recording where he rattles off all those facts mm-hmm. like 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 the college film student who just like knows everything about a certain person's career there's got to be more to life than one point or the pope too late for my dad, but for you, mate, there's hope. And what kind of sandwich is this? Cucumber. Cucumber. An ordinary sandwich, immortalised in the importance of being earnest. At the Theatre Royal, Haymarket, February 14th, 1895. A night the mundane became sublime. That was a first performance, my friend. And it really tells you a lot of like, you've just told me a ton, but you've told me way more about yourself than you meant to in that moment. <laughs> a little Oscar Wilde Padawan, if you will. Yeah, it's a little, <laughs> it's so, he's clearly using that moment to like assert mm-hmm. some kind of dominance in that scene, to like be like, I know what I'm talking about here. And like, you don't, so I'm going to educate you. And he, but he's talking like it's that's not what we're talking about, man. Like you missed this, you missed this conversation entirely. It's a shield. It, it really is. No, absolutely. It's, it's to keep his, to keep his, uh, to his world together. It's interesting with this show because I was just looking at it that it's it's a tiny show, but it's not. It has a fifteen person mm-hmm. cast. It is yeah. a giant tiny yeah. show, and I think that's the thing is when I when I saw it. It was just like, like I said, it was just like bleeding off the stage. It was so big and there was so much going on, but it doesn't feel like it because the the story is so intimate. You don't realize that, my God, there are so many people in this show. Mm-hmm. Um, it remind me, I, reminded me of when I saw, I saw Bear in Los Angeles, uh, mm-hmm. the original production, like 10 times. Um, but that was another, another one where it was like, there, there had to be like 
20 something people on that stage in that small ass little theater. And it was that kind of thing where the emotion was so heavy and so, uh, so big for that theater that it's, it's a very similar feeling. I, I kind of have that. I, there you go. It's another Catholic show. Um, sure. <laughs> it's, it's in that, in that same realm, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, like I, said, I mean, small set, but big emotions, big feelings, mm-hmm. big grand. Yeah. You know, like Ragtime is a big show, not only because it has 80 people in it and a huge set, but it's a, it, it's epic in scope. The story covers mm-hmm. a huge period of history and a huge amount of time and has 100 characters in it. But these shows and Once on this Island, you know, other shows like, like, that they write, it, it's the emotions of the central characters that are so huge. Like they're they're having these big feelings and we join them at moments of explosion. We join them when these are internal and they're becoming external. So there's this mm-hmm. great emotional release throughout it uh and not to take anything away from back to before of course like which is like the ultimate emotional explosion song but it it, it, there's something a little more surprising i think about a show like this you like you say you go into a 90 seat theater and you look at it you're like okay it's a little musical it's got 15 people in it that's a not small but it's not big and i can handle that and then all of a sudden it's coming at you like a freight train and you're just oh gosh like i'm having feelings so many feelings i was they're not ready for this but i mean it's like that's the thing is i think about like do i know i know from my side from the writing side where i'll tell someone oh yeah my my show has you know six people and then they'll reply like can it be four like (laughs) just like (laughs) and then so like that's why i'm like 15 my god what i would give to have a show with 15 people in there i have i have one show that has 11 and I am even that one. I'm just like, no one's going to put this up. Um, <laughs> I, I, my magic number is six. I have most of my stuff is, is six. Six um, is good. Yeah. Yeah. Six I is like good. Six. I like, I like six. six. Yeah. yeah six chest, is nice. Yeah. Um, what did Ira, Ira Levin said? Five, ca- five people, one set. You know, it's six. Yeah, it's exactly. good. Six people, no set. Right. Is that how you, exactly. you get away? Don't pay for the well, set. Well, that's, that's, that's eight tails. Eight tails. Well, I, I get away with, I added one. I added a, I have a, a musician um but oh. our show our show the entire set comes in on the back in the backpacks of my of my cast well, there and you go. so yeah it's it the and then it's really easy cleanup too like i i the whole set lives and <laughs> lives inside my apartment i just bring it in like here you go all the whole set all the costumes everything is in in six backpacks uh, I really like wonderful. I like you. I'm imagining you pitching this to an artistic director, being like, "All right, it's six people. I know, but really easy cleanup when it's over. <laughs> really easy cleanup. I'm telling you, I'm gonna walk out like it's one trip in my one trip. Never, in the lift. you'll yes. never know we were here. It's no big deal. Don't even. Don't I'm, I'm even very worry. good at that. Like I, I most <laughs> of my the, my three musicals, or my two, two of my musicals and this play are a single a single unit set. It's like give me give me some risers for like a outside of a, a baseball field. You you don't even have to give me some launchers. I can do it with that too. They're watching the baseball mm-hmm. game. The other one takes place in a in an airport, uh, and then there's there's this where it's like it takes place in a van, and everything they do they act out outside of that. Um, so it's uh, the idea of a fifteen person multi set. Yeah. Oh yeah, show as a as an off Broadway is like, ah, I, and, then, and I know there were rumors of, of transferring at one point. So maybe there's that, but that's a, it's, it's a massive, a massive tiny show. 
it, it's when I, I think people may not realize, I mean, you and I shared a laugh about it, but I think you may not realize it, like, dear listener, if you're not in the writing game, how much like what Mark just said is absolutely true. That like you've said, you know, you have six, can it be four? I've pitched shows where it's like, it's three and can it be two? And it's a real mm-hmm. like, wow, gang, like, hang on. <laughs> I don't, I mean, maybe, but I don't know. That's an, like, that's the, the. The, the these considerations when you're presenting shows like look the next time look at your local regional theaters that's producing paid work how many actors are in these shows how many you know it's two three maybe four or five sometimes if the name of the show is big enough uh it, it's there's been a recent trend in the last you know decade probably of just like how, can we get like as few actors as is humanly possible in that thing and sh- you know shrink it down can- as far as you can possibly go can they play their own instruments can they yes yes yeah i do yeah i had a show out in uh madison a couple weeks or a couple months ago and i remember getting there and seeing like the two-story set and the seven-person band and my eight-person cast of like some of who were flown out and the the set that dug into the downstairs of the uh, or underneath the the theater being like how did we do this? Like, how did this happen? <laughs> oh, this was a paragraph a year ago. Um, <laughs> but just thinking, like, I felt like I was on Broadway. Like, I just, I mm-hmm. got to this set and I'm like, I have never had something like this. And it just was so magical and wonderful to, to realize that sometimes you do get that, that, okay, we're going to do it. We're going to, we're mm-hmm. going to make this happen. And like, my God, though, it, it really did. Though, as I was watching it, I'm like, I'm on Broadway. I'm in Madison, Wisconsin, but I am on Broadway right now. <laughs> Got that Midwest money. That's what that's all about. Got that cheese oh, money. Oh, it was so good. And, were, yeah. and it was so, oh, God, everyone's so nice. It's so wonderful. Oh, I love it. I, I've had shows in Milwaukee. It's the best. Yeah. <laughs> it's the absolute best. <laughs> I, I I went for drinks with some uh, two friends who, who drove over to see the show. And my husband and I went and got drinks. And I got the first round. And we had got four shots and each of us got a drink and uh i was like no no, no i got it and i i paid and then they bring it they give me my card and it's like it's 14 dollars. and i was like are you what yeah like it's 14 I'm oh like, yeah are you kidding me yeah that's that's let's that's go again maybe like, one <laughs> that's maybe one drink here <laughs> oh yeah that's a whole different conversation in new york obviously oh, that was it's... that was crazy but but they <laughs> but they built my cool set. <laughs> I was gonna say that's really. I mean that. So when you are when you are working on something, I mean, how much do these sort of outside distractions play play a role in, in when you're conceiving or when you're planning or sort of like, well, it's got to be only a couple people or it's got to have a like. Do you, do you find those restrictions to be inspiring when you're working on your shows, or do you not not think about them until later into the creative process? I d- I, I think about them later. I think I, my first, my first pass is always going to be, let's do the story. Let's do this as is. Um, my, any, anything after that, like I'll let them tell me these are the things, um, or I'll let the director help me figure that out. I'm also the type, like for even for this show, we'll have, uh, I'll write it into the script where it's like, and then, and she's hiding in a blanket, and then the blanket becomes a mountain, and then they climb the mountain and throw somebody off, and he's just like, how? I'm like, no, we'll get it. We'll figure it out. We'll, we'll figure it out, because magical realism. Um, right. But 
it's and that's how that's how that was that's how like this this one this last one i had was like all right it's got to be a farce it's got to have all these other things going on um we need multiple exits and they there were certain things that they conceived they're like can you do one exit (laughs) like Mm, all right that'll make it that'll make it equally as fun as Mm -hmm. as in this farce of like if they're literally only coming out of elevator doors the whole time that's going to be great um but it uh it 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 starts out with that like you have to you have to write your show the way you want it mm-hmm. and then let somebody tell you how you can fix it <laughs> how you can how you can make it workable and and with every time i mean for eight tales it's this, the one we're doing now like they figured out how the blanket becomes a mountain and how to climb a mountain and throw somebody off a mountain and switch costumes on somebody um mm-hmm. before, before the end of it uh and so sometimes it is just writing it and letting them figure it out. I tell my students and things to treat the first draft as largely a proof of concept. And then mm-hmm. like, we'll work, we'll figure the rest out. That's what a rewrite is for. Exactly. Uh, but I like what you said. Like, I like that approach too, of just sort of being like, and then like I wrote for, for Velveteen Rabbit over said, and then the, the, she, the, the rabbit pulls a sword out of the books and made of books and yeah. or something like that and i was just sort of like i'm just gonna write that and then if they come back later we'll we'll talk about it nobody ever asked they were just like okay and they just built this thing and i was like see there we go that's what i'm mm-hmm. you know you just said i didn't really know what i meant by that but i liked that that image and i think that's the 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 people i love to collaborate with are the ones who, i mean they'll call me when they're like we can't do this like i know what you're describing here we need it we need clarity or we need something else but generally approaching it with that thing of like yeah okay let's give that a shot like this what you know people like to be creative they like to be challenged in those moments i think yeah i think so and it's and it's that joy of like figuring out how it's going to happen and i mm-hmm. love that i love when everyone suddenly clicks onto the same page and they're like oh oh i got this mm. all right this is how we're going to do this mm-hmm. and that's yeah it's wonderful it re- it's a collaboration oh it's, yeah mm-hmm when you've collaborated with a lot of people, I mean, do you, you, do you, do you enjoy, do you seek out different people to collaborate with when you're working on something new or do you meet somebody like, well, we should do something together. Is it that kind of um, a little bit of both? Too? Yeah. Like I think uh, initially I, I wanted that Aaron's and Flaherty experience of like, I'm going to have the one person, but that doesn't always happen. And, and mm-hmm. sometimes it's, it's, it's like, I've been very lucky that I, I don't think there's a single person I've ever worked with that I would never work with again. Mm-hmm. Um, every, everyone has been amazing. But it's often, you know, what show are we writing? It's like, oh, I want to write this show. And maybe this person doesn't want to write this show. So it's like, okay, do you want to write this show? Mm-hmm. Um, and I've had a couple where we worked on multiple things. Uh, but I've also just been really lucky to have met so many people from so many places uh, and been able to work with them, um, sometimes by chance and sometimes not. Uh, Shining in Misery, the, the last one we did, uh, and Andrew Abrams, uh, he wrote, but I'm a cheerleader. That's, uh, that was out mm-hmm. in, uh, UK. And, um, it's, but he and I met at a party like seven years ago and like in passing talked, never talked writing, just mm-hmm. never, and never saw each other again. And then I saw this movie on Amazon called Waiting in the Wings. And I wrote to the author, like, Hey, you know, I said, this was a really cool movie. Like I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you for writing it. And he wrote back, I'm turning it into a stage show and I need writers. Do you want in? Like, okay. And he ended up sure. pairing me with Andy. And so Andy and I wrote a song for it. And then a little while later, we're like, hey, let's, this is really good. Let's, mm-hmm. let's write something else. Like, what do you think about Stephen King? And then went, went with that. And so that was all by chance. Like that, 
I, I'd never pursued him or pursued me. It was just kind of, we got thrown together in, in a different project. Uh, and they've all been really lucky like that. It's, it's nice. And it allow, it's allowed me to have a very different set of stories. Um, that's, and then maybe that's what I want of, of my Aaron's and Flair deisms is I always want like people to look at the shows and be like, Oh, I didn't know you wrote mm-hmm. all of these, these different things. I think writing teams appear to be, I don't know if this is just my perception or or what, but like, obviously there are examples to the, to the counter, but like writing teams seem to be a scarcer thing than they used to be. Um, yeah. Obviously Pasek I, and Paul, like being, being mm-hmm. an exception. Yes. Don't at me, but there's a, you, I, one of the shows we did recently was uh, Kerrigan and Loudermilk's Our First Mistake. Mm. And that's a duo who was very successful as a duo and then sort of broke up but didn't and like still works together but works with other people. It, it It's kind of hard to maintain a constant working relationship with one person in the way the modern theater landscape, I, I think. Yeah, because you, you see like phases. Like if you look at like Sondheim and you look at the like the Weidman versus the Lapine like and, and so on, like the mm-hmm. shows are so specific to to those and i that's one thing i really enjoy is i like having multiple collaborators because the shows become become different my Mm -hmm. my latino immigrant show isn't the same as my stephen king parody or my uh women searching for faith at a baseball game like it's all all different things because i've had this opportunity to work with such different storytellers i've been the the be my workshop now and Mm -hmm. uh they've every every two weeks or so paired us with a different person for a different assignment mm-hmm. and but by the end of the year we have to like choose our collaborator for the following year and so it's oh, some people wow. immediately were like you 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 and i'm right. i'm i'm terrified of having like the dodgeball situation of like being mm-hmm. the last bit oh, um yeah. it's like hey but uh i'm here too yeah right now i've been <laughs> writing good stuff remember me um but yeah, no, it's so it'll be interesting to see that that feeling of like a year long collaboration with somebody. My my good friend Doug Cohen, uh, mm, composer, yeah, lyricist, a wonderful wonderful man, uh, tells the story of going to the BMI workshop, you know, in the eighties, and doing they did that exact same thing where they're pairing everybody up with somebody random in the room, and he went up to Lynn Aaron's, who was not Lynn Aaron's uh-huh. at that point, yeah. and said, "I would really like to to work with you," and she said. I promised Stephen Flaherty that we would work together. So, but I'll catch you, you know, on the next pass or whatever. And as he says, the rest is history. <laughs> that is hilarious. Oh God. It is just such one of those like up oh, there and there we go. And there becomes like the collaboration out of that, out of that workshop. He said like they were the two who kind of came out of that group as the, the preeminent, you know, composers. Yeah. Era. But they were the reason I joined. Uh, they were the reason I wanted to. After mm-hmm. after I did my research and was like, okay, people are at musicals. Who are these? Where do they come from? And it's like, oh, mm-hmm. that. I want to do that. Um, and so well, it's workshop like, experiences are so hard to find and yeah. get. And uh, like that's such a it's such a blessing that it exists mm-hmm. for that purpose, just to write, because that's where you obviously learn how to do it is by doing it. So you mentioned D- Doug Cohen. I yeah. uh, I fanboyed like crazy for him the last time i saw him uh because i drove from cal from los angeles to san francisco to see opposite of sex the musical oh um, wow yeah wow. and i had before they lost the rights wow oh, i i found out that too um i i'm pretty sure i sat next to him 
like you know, twenty one year old me because he was laughing at every joke and taking notes. Sure. And and we we got the tickets so late that we had to sit separately, my husband and I. And so I was pretty sure I was sitting next to him. And somehow I got a bootleg, like a friend gave it to me. And so I knew that show by heart. Like there are jokes in that show that have made their way into our marriage and have continued wow. to be. And so one day here at work, uh, he came in and he he was he introduced himself to to me while he was here. And I'm like, I know exactly who you are. In fact, blah, and just gave him that entire spiel. Ah. And he's like, oh, my God. I'm like, you understand. Typical gay is something that's in my in my marriage at home like there's so many <laughs> something happens i'm like i got news for you like that's i know that show and i knew its history wow. and i didn't understand because of, of i remember when he went to williamstown and like then it just vanished and yeah. then he told me that what happened i'm like no like that's oh yeah oh. That's i was like a... at least make an album you could at least do that like <laughs> give us give us the the studio yeah, album it's a... of that show it is one of those that that is one of those stories where you're just like, um, because because shows don't make it for a variety of reasons, but mm-hmm. like most of them at least get to go, like you say, or get an album or get or whatever. Like that show got yeah. that's that's such a shame. What happened? I was like, that, I have my show. little like mashup of the San Francisco uh, bootleg mixed in with the demo that somebody got me. I have no idea how he had wow. that. Someone gave me the demo. And so I have like Jeez. my full show of the opposite of sex that I used to sure. listen to. Oh, I love that show. And oh, so wow. it was just funny to meet him. And then completely, when I meet someone I enjoy, I completely fanboy. And so it's just like, ah, sure. then you did this. And yeah. So he went home. That's and great. Like, well, now I've got, I mean, Doug <laughs> listens every week. So I definitely have to leave all that in now because Doug, he oh, God, he'll remember. <laughs> He's one of the nicest people in the world. Oh, my God. Yes. I, I could do a podcast episode about the opposite of sex. Like, that's how much I loved that shit. <laughs> I could, like, because I wonder when the that. like when that all kind of <laughs> there's a point where that all kind of like, breaks around. Like, can't, like you say, like, can't, it's been long enough now. Can't we, like, swing yeah. this thing around and get some. Yeah. You know, let's call some people. Let's get a let's get an album. Let's do a yeah. concert of fifty four below. Something. Carrie's not doing Beetlejuice. She right. can play sixteen. There you go. See, uh, there you <laughs> go. I want to ask you about Eight Tales of Pedro, which is going up now at uh, Queens Theater. Queens Theater. Um, on the, yeah, on the twenty eighth of April. Twenty eighth through the seventh. Through and the seventh. So this is um, a show that that's been d- developed and 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 published. It sort of is in the world. Correct. Yeah, Eight Tales. Eight Tales had a wonderful journey. It it started out. Uh, it started out like ten years ago, and I, I fell in love with these folk tales, uh, these uh, Latin American folk tales, and I was wanted to write this show. I wanted to like write a show about them, uh, but I could never could figure out the envelope, and I could, never could figure out why I was doing this show or writing this show. But I did have all of it done from that the folk tale perspective. And then uh, I sat on it for years, for like 10 years. I just, because I could mm. not figure out why or how. Mm. And then I, uh, the 2016 election happened and America was in a, a weird place. And I had at my old job uh, some guests who were arguing and I went to go dissolve the argument or resolve the argument. And uh, one of them turned and said, are you even a citizen? And it just like, oh, it hit me hard. And yeah. like I was already going through my own little feelings of imposter syndrome when it came to the show or in general of like, am I Latino enough to write this show? Because I'm not always Latino enough for my friends, for this, for mm-hmm. that. And then uh, here comes this guy who says I'm Latino enough for him. And so right. <laughs> that was like, 
Oh. <laughs> so the show became about that. It became about pride. It became about being trapped in between two worlds of and finding your own identity. And so it it takes place in a, a van with six people going to a country they've never been before and they're terrified and they're scared of, of what could possibly be and what could possibly not be. And to alleviate that tension, they start telling each other, especially the youngest one, uh, these folktales to to help him find his own pride and help him find his own identity in this in this world. And so you have the two journeys. You have the journey in the van from one place to another, and then you have the journey across Mexico for uh, Pedro as he's he's trying to to reach the the woman he loves. And the stories are all about tricked. Uh, he's a trickster and so on. And so he's using his mind and his brain to get from point A to point B. And eventually the two stories combine because they, they both reach their destination. And I, I threw it into a festival years ago to kind of test it out to see like, all right, is this what I think it is? And it just went nuts. And I remember turning to my husband, I was like, oh shit, this is going to be a thing. I, I, I really was sneaking this in here. I was not mentally prepped for this to be a thing. And then we sold out and we won the festival and we got invited back to be part of their, uh, their main season. And so we did that. And then we were talking to the queen, to queen Cedar about moving. And then, uh, the world got stalled by a pandemic. And so that all happened. And then, you know, they reached out a little while later and said, you know, we'd love to have you come for a reading. So we did that and it was great. And immediately after they talked about, Hey, let's bring you into the main season. Um, mm. and the mix of that, yeah, the show got published. Uh, we're probably because we translated the script for, uh, projections during one of the performances um the, produ the producers the publishers are interested in publishing the script in spanish as well mm. so uh it'll be duly published which is really exciting yeah um, but yeah it's had this it's had this wonderful life and for us i kind of feel like this is our our last time with it because now it's licensable and can be done anywhere mm. uh, uh but this is our last time with uh four of the original cast members uh, one who was from the reading. So we only really have one new person in the, in the cast ultimately for this, for this production. Um, then being at the Queen's Theater, it's everything is, everything is bigger for this, this production. So it's a good, okay, this was, this was wonderful, uh, period to the sentence. Um, but it'll be there. It's, it's going on until the 7th of May. And I'm, I'm so excited. It's, it's really, it's been the most wonderful experience I've ever had uh, working on a show. I have to ask though, Mark, as we wrap up here, as we hard crash back into A Man of No Importance, what is your favorite song from A Man of No Importance? Mm. God, it's hard to pick a favorite. Um, it's got to be Welcome to the World. I think that's when I finally mm. start sobbing uncontrollably. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, like it's I, I'm already crying. Cuddles Mary gave. It's it's in a different that place I'll tell than you did before. This yes, this re-listen, mm -hmm. like the second time through. Yeah, the Cuddles Mary gave was a real like ooh, like that that gate that got me in a dark in a dark and deep way. That was like, oh man. She made the soda bread of angels, and the house was always clean, and the way she pressed the collar. I look fit to meet a queen 
What if ever there's one memory I'd say? Well, it's the Cardinal's very Well, I think listening to it as a 20-year-old who is, or 22-year-old who just got into a relationship as opposed to someone who has been with that same person for 19 years, like that song hits. It's just it's like, mm-hmm. oh God, I don't, I don't ever want to be in that situation. Um, and so, yeah, like it's, it's interesting to see how a song can change or you can change and, and appreciate a song that much more. Mm-hmm. Um, but my God, that's a, that's a beautiful one. Mark, this has been absolutely wonderful. Uh, where can people find you on the internet? Um, all of my social medias are Storyteller MG. Uh, so you can find me on the Twitter sphere and the Insta world. Um, there, uh, my, my website is, uh, markeugenegarcia.com. So I always put current stuff there and always a ticket for when I have a show up. There's a thing in the corner to get a ticket for it. Uh, but please, yeah, come stop by. Say hi. That's great. Absolutely wonderful. Mark, thank you so much. Thank you. This has been a blast. You thought you knew a bit of life You had no clue You took a step The world came crashing down on you And what you feared the most of all Happened Well now you've come to Welcome to the world Welcome to the world Last, you've been ticking tickets far too long, my friend. Watching the world rolling past. The original cast is produced and edited by me, Patrick Flynn. Please rate and review the original cast on your podcatcher of choice. It's the easiest way to help other listeners find the show. Go to bit.ly/originalcaststore for original cast merchandise like T-shirts, tote bags, and more. Become a patron of the original cast at patreon.com/originalcastpod so you can listen to our bonus podcast, The Original Cast at the Movies. On the socials, we're at originalcastpod. Special thanks to our social media manager, Bethany Zalecki. Hi, Bethany. My thanks to Mark Eugene Garcia for coming and talking to me. I'm Patrick Flynn. And I can't. I have rehearsal. Welcome to the world. I am in the world. That should be enough. And that's all I have to say. Thank you.